To another edition of Pod Clubhouse's coverage of the third season of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This is for the fifth episode called It's Comedy or Cabbage. This is Paul. This is Caroline. It's Comedy or Cabbage. These are the choices for Rose and Abe this episode. They can either go eat some stuffed cabbage with Shirley or have to go deal with their daughter and her comedy act. Given how they feel about the comedy... <laughs> it's a real it's Sophie's choice, huh, for them? <laughs> well, it is. Well, it's and it's they didn't even pick the devil they knew. True, very true. They well, they are over over being at Shirley and Moisha's house. Speaking of at their house and Abe's house guests, <laughs> do you think that Abe has figured out his beatniks? Are actually posers. No, I don't think he's figured it out. I mean, I've figured it out and I don't figure out people that quick. <laughs> they they would be uh, tiresome. I would be all done. But the comical size of that newspaper, Paul, I mean, I was cracking up. I kept being like, look, look, look. <laughs> so funny. This episode had so many stylized points on it that were larger than life in a lot of ways, like obviously a larger than life newspaper, but other things that happened later on in the episode that, that don't occur in real life, but are still super comical on screen. Very funny to see the characters going through these events, these things that should be ridiculous to them because they're ridiculous to us, but they treat it perfectly normal. Like this is just a slightly oversized newspaper, not like this is a newspaper bigger than my arm span. <laughs> you know, I feel like there's something about the fact that they've moved the setting from Vegas to Miami. There's something about Miami to me, you know, like I always associate the colors like pink and turquoise and just everything being like super bright and super like colorful full and like you said, larger than life. Everything is just loud and the music and the people and the personalities and the food and everything is just like bigger than it would be back home. And I, I think that spills over even into the New York scenes. So back in Queens with the beatniks, I, I mean, <laughs> when I say that they're posers, they're dropping all, all the hints. Like even earlier this season when uh, they hadn't been kicked out of the house yet, out of the apartment and they were ordering around Zelda. This is not what the proletariat is supposed to do, right? Midge picked up on that right away. Like, she was like, what are you doing? You know, like, this is crazy. They just, they seem like they are people who, like, need to have a cause, but they, they're just happy with having a cause, you know, but mm. not necessarily, like, they don't even, you know, wrap their arms around what the cause is, but they have to have a cause. Like college students. Well, yes, that's them. <laughs> <laughs> we were all like them once, Paul. Were we? The thing that cracked me up is really the way that Abe turned into the child in, in this entire you know, dynamic where now he's like, when he was lying there and he's all like, oh, Moisha, that I could have my friends over the entire thing. Then I'm going to call Moish. Moish come down the entire thing of Shirley calling his bluff and like embarrassing him. And he's my friends are already here. And like, oh my, my heart was like, oh, first of all, again, we've all been there. <laughs> like, you know, when your mother's like embarrassing you in front of your friends. Oh, yes. oh my goodness, Paul. You know how like, 
people have a gag reflex, but some people have a different gag reflex where apparently they can just put all kinds of stuff in their mouth and they don't throw up, right? Yeah, okay. Same thing for shame and embarrassment, right? Where it's different for different people. The Maisels can like sword swallow when it comes to <laughs> things that would embarrass other people. Yes, I agree with you. I can see what you're saying there. Yeah, they, they very much that was on display with Shirley and her yelling out to Ethan and trying to like scream out the entire lunch I menu. I have chicken. <laughs> I have peanut butter. Yeah, it was funny. Who even calls out chicken and expects some sort of response? <laughs> well, you know what, though? He popped up, didn't he? So I, I'm not going to say that their uh, methods are ineffective. I, I think that they're caustic and they are 100% the polar opposite to what, you know, Abe and Rose would want to do. But they are effective. They get things done. I wonder if to some extent, you know, winding up at the Maisels in this purgatory type existence, if to some extent, maybe not Rose so much, but Abe feels like he deserves this because of whatever, you know, missteps he's had with Miriam, whatever missteps he's had with his career have landed him in this spot. So when he gets his dressing down in front of his friends where he winds up on the subway rather than in their home and he still hasn't sunk low enough mentally, emotionally to decide to leave. And it takes Rose to be like, we are getting the F out. (laughs) I think partially it's that, you know, like you said, because of his actions, you know, that's why they're here. I don't think he can be the first one to pull the ripcord, right? He can't be. Mm. There's no way. It has to be Rose. Okay. And and plus also Rose never gets to even leave the house. So, you know, she seems like she's there 24-7 and has to deal with the insanity. I mean, can you imagine everything with Zelda? Zelda shushing her. I'm not saying that anyone should have a Zelda, you know, Rose relationship. Certainly, I think it's questionable. But if you did, if you did and it changed on a dime like that, I think that you would be losing your mind. Did How do you feel about uh, Rose going up into the liquor cabinet and, and pouring herself a teacup of a liquor. <laughs> I mean, that's probably a big deal for her. I would think it's like the only way she's surviving the situation. Were you surprised to see where this ended them up, though? I mean, especially their route that they ended up there? Yes, it did. I wouldn't have expected them to wind up in Miami or and actually any leg of the journey because of their distaste for, you know, the whole comedy thing. I, maybe maybe it's a, any port in a storm kind of situation. I think it's got to be. And I keep going back to the dynamic, the like parent child dynamic and how it's been turned on its head. There's something about it to where Midge seemed to be, like you said, like the safe haven, almost like kids running back to their parents, you know, like there was something about it that, that they knew they'd be taken care of there and, and that she wouldn't turn them out, you know? And, and I, I'm very hopeful that we're going to get to see some great interactions between them and Midge because really it's been a really long time since they've had any experiences with her comedy and and I, it's time that we get some respect for what she's doing as a career. And to some extent, Rose is going off of what Abe told her and just sort of preconceived <laughs> notions about what A, her previous experiences with Miriam would yield in terms of what her comedic output might sound like. But then just, I don't know, maybe what she's heard or seen on whatever media they have. I don't recall. Do they watch much TV? They don't, I don't remember them to. watching much TV, but definitely, you know, she needed to have 
some amount of exposure to to Midge's act here so that, you know, they can start having a moment of being like, this is for real. And it's going to be a big milestone moment for Midge, you know, for to actually be recognized by her parents and what she's doing and understanding that she is creating a real life here. This isn't just it makes me think of podcasting, Paul, and all the times when our parents will say the same thing. They'll be like, how much money are you making? How much money are you? You know, like that kind of thing where they're yeah. like and they can't wrap their brain around what a podcaster actually is. There's a lot of confusion and whatnot. I feel like that all of that plays back into the same thing of it being like, well, maybe you should listen to some and then you'll kind of have like an idea of what we do. And they're like, <laughs> you know, like not, not really so sure about that. Caroline, I don't know if you know, but our daughter, our second born yeah. is very into voice actors. Oh yes. I'm aware. And one in particular, a guy named Jess Harnell is the voice of one of the Animaniacs. I saw a video about how he's in a rock band that has some notoriety because they make kind of these mashup songs, right? And so the video is about him telling how he got into rock and roll. And one of the stories relates to what we're talking about, this idea of feeling fulfilled in what you're doing and creating a level of that you recognize that is success, but others may, may be like, you're wasting your time with that. His story was that he and his friend were overheard covering Journey songs and the owner of a club in like Mexico invited him to come be the house band for a few weeks no pay, but you can stay in a uh, beachside room, get all the food you want, and um, all you have to do is play for a half an hour a day. Are you being paid? No. But are you having a pretty successful run as a musician? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's exactly, you know, our original intent for podcasting was like, we want to get press passes and stop paying for going to conventions and things like that. We didn't want to have to pay for it anymore. So we were like, well, if we review it and talk about it, then we can just get in for free and that's much better. And thankfully it's changed even more from that. And we get even more benefits, but at the same time, again, it's not a platform. It's not a medium that our parents understand. And that's where I think that like Abe and Rose, they just can't wrap their brain around stand up, and like most, especially a female stand up, Right. Or opening for a touring pop act like what shy baldwin would have been mm -hmm. just compl all of this is <laughs> new and and unproven territory yeah i'm excited though and I, I do you think that they're permanently out of the Maisel's house i mean i know they left tons of stuff behind but will this be a turning point i mean they've got to go get their stuff back but right. maybe this will be uh an awakening for them in terms of seeing more of the world, re, you know, rekindling whatever it was they felt back in Paris in terms of just being out of your, your comfort zone, but still finding things that you like. And maybe they'll continue wanting to travel. I don't see them just, just settling for back at the Maisels after this. Me neither. And I mean, the joke that was said throughout this episode was, you know, that, that all Jewish people need to come and live in Florida at some point. Like they were joking that it's like a law or something. So, you know, who knows what will happen with Abe and Rose? Maybe they will opt to come down to sunny Florida. It's warmer. <laughs> Let's stay in New York for a little bit more until we get down to Florida, all right? Let's finish sure. up with Joel. There's just a little bit of Joel in this episode. And in particular, I wanted to know if you noticed the scene while May is studying, while Archie and uh, Joel are working. And Joel is rambling on about this and that is a problem. And if I don't get the liquor license, this thing won't work. The camera fixes on May as she looks up 
focuses in on that bit of the conversation, knowing that her allegiances are split when it comes to this particular place and its success, right? Interesting. Like, okay, yeah. Like the Chinese people that run the gambling establishment that she represented at that lunch the, the a couple episodes ago, they seem to want it to not be noticeable, to be a kind of a failure as a business so that no one notices them. Yeah. Okay. Right? Yes. So are we setting up a, a problem or is she like perking up? Like I know how to get liquor license or what I'm saying is, is it like, I know how to prevent a, a liquor license. Interesting. Okay. So I was definitely taking that. My first gut instinct was she was hearing a problem that she could solve. That this was something like, oh, I know a guy over there and I'm just going to go down there and I'm going to take care of it. But I very much like your take that, well, now she knows that there's like a linchpin in terms of the success of the club. So she could work it both ways. Fascinating. I don't know which way she's going to go. I mean, do you think maybe it goes one way and then she finds out that Joel and Midge slept together and are in fact married again, that perhaps uh, it'll go the other way? All that's available. That's it could it could I could see it I could see her being very important in that. Or she or it could just be I noticed something that didn't happen and you know, the liquor license is a last second thing and it goes to normal channels, but I why focus on her in that moment unless she does have something to do with it. I like your your questioning of her allegiances there. I think that that's something that's very important. And it had Joel not cheated on her with Midge so fast and so soon in this whole little budding romance, I would have said, no, I really, really think that she's going to still protect Joel. But I think, you know, a woman scorned is bad business. So he could really have some consequences waiting for him. That guy. <laughs> I would say that he is like, you know, a snake bit, but he does it to himself. You he know, bites his own stupid snake tail. <laughs> He does. He's like, you know, there's like that type of snake that actually eats itself. Have you seen that? The idiot snake? <laughs> the Joel snake. <laughs> the Joel snake. He's a little like that snake, you know, like, what's your deal? Why do you, why would you do that? But here he is eating his own tail. Maybe serving as our conduit between Miami and New York. We have our one character that goes between Miami and New York in a, in a regular basis. That's Susie. Yeah. So I really want to talk about her, you know, new situation with Sophie and the absolute unprofessional actions of Sophie. I'm I'm quite surprised at the way that she's behaving. I really thought because this was something that she wanted, this was a project she was excited about. She's been pushing for for apparently some years. I can't believe that she she's upset about things like she's expected to know her lines. This so doesn't make any sense to me because she is a stand up who goes on stage and and does performances, of course, without lines or without any type of notes or anything. We've seen her do her act. So I'm kind of like, I don't know if they want us to just ignore that fact and just feel like, well, this is such a new, you know, facet of her career. She She's just being like extra prickly about everything. But it makes no sense to me that as a stage actress in any way, she she actually plays a, a role. You know, she plays this, this Sophie Lennon, you know, uh, blue collar person that I don't understand her confusion with acting or her, or the confusion with memorizing lines. All of it 
I mean, I don't know that you'd call it diva behavior exactly, but it's kind of that thing where you associate with someone that's been only told yes for a very long time. People are in a position now to have to tell her you're doing a bad job. No, you can't have that. And she doesn't know how to use that. Like you pointed out, that scene where she opens and closes the door, <laughs> what might be lost on a lot of people that you pointed out to me was that she doesn't open her own doors. Right. She has butlers and servants and everything. I mean, freaking Dawes is there at rehearsal. <laughs> exactly. You know, the mindset of even opening up a door, that's how disconnected she is with leave the the line memorization alone. That's an elevated kind of need compared to ambulation. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, I'll agree with you, but I have to add this caveat of like, if, they, if the highlighting issue was that she couldn't work with others or that she didn't know how to do everyday things... I would be okay with both those things. Like the fact that she didn't even bother to to learn the name of the other actress, that this is a three person play. And she was acting like there wasn't even a third role like that. That's solid. Okay. Or if she was saying her lines over the top of Gavin, like not giving him a chance to say his lines or even saying his lines for him or something, because she's so used to a one woman show. All of that. I give you, I don't give you, I don't need to learn my lines or I don't, or the, this idea that I can't, I don't know how to act like someone else. Those two things, I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Now, the only thing that, that I can give like a little like, well, maybe is she created her own character and there is some element of stand-up that is somewhat, you know, spontaneous. So I'm sure that when she goes up there, she knows the joke she's going to tell, but maybe she tells it a little differently every time. It's not memorized per se word for word as much as like she knows the joke she's going to tell mm -hmm. so she can deliver it with the timing and the words that she wants each night she can vary it up she can play off the audience that kind of thing so then having to do things repetitively exactly the same because there's other people on stage and you're doing a play that someone else wrote then in that case that skill maybe she doesn't have and and this would be shocking to be like what do you mean i can't just Get the gist of what this character was going to say. I could see that even in just talking it out. Like, I'm like, OK, all right. I'm understanding that a little more. In our world, late 20th century, early 21st century, we can think of a few stand ups that have made the transition to acting. We can think of fewer that have made the transition to acting well, you know, where they play characters as opposed to alternate versions of their stage presence, right? I'd be challenged to think of one that has gone to the stage. I mean, I, I think I know enough about acting to know that stage acting and screen acting, you know, some people do both, but really there's a lot of respect given to the stage actors because of so much that they have to keep in their brains and react to and all that. And in a way, again, being a Gilmore Girls fan, I know that Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino have great respect for Broadway actors and, and actresses in that they have Sutton Foster on in A Year in the Life. They also have Christian Borle on. And, and both of those two, they have like tremendous respect. Like they do a whole play in Stars Hollow. Wasn't Kelly Bishop a stage actress? But She was a dancer for sure. Okay. But but yeah, she absolutely could have been on Broadway. I'm, I'm not as familiar with that, but for sure. I believe she was a ballroom dancer. I know she's a New York actress. I'm getting air quotes to Caroline and that implies some stage. Dancing for sure. I mean, because yeah. that was like a big part of, I mean, that's Amy's background is dancing. So, um, you know, it's a huge part of them respecting theater. And so, so to have a character like Sophie, 
which is this indulged, you know, like you said, diva type person being so disrespectful to the the hard work that really goes into Broadway kind of makes sense to me from their like experience and wanting to kind of show the audience like, like, look at this woman, like, you know, even she is supposed to be someone who's a quote professional, but she can't even like work up to the standards of how hard it would be to do a stage show. And so I could see where this is sort of like a backdoor compliment a little bit, I guess, to Broadway, because it's like you have your main character acting so foolish to show how, you know, how much respect they do have for how much, how difficult it is. Well, and the experienced Broadway actor, Gavin, he's kind of got this attitude, like I'm paid either way. This is just amusing to me to see all this. I mean, I can say my lines. I've already memorized the whole show. Right. You know, right. <laughs> so the look and demeanor Gavin carries is just like, meh, whatever. <laughs> I've seen it before. Well, like you said, I mean, they made that very clear and they said it over and over in the previous episode about how expensive Gavin is and that he is 100 percent when he was talking to her about the money, you know, just as long as you know how expensive I am. So, you know, maybe that's even like a tongue in cheek, you know, comment of some people who, again, don't maybe respect the craft so much as, you know, Amy and Dan do as writers and creators. So fascinating. I I am very happy that the conversation we had in our last episode about something's got to give between Sophie and Susie because, you know, she's not acting as a true manager. And it turns out to be Midge where they have this like milestone moment where she's like, hey, you've got to step in here and do something about the way that you're handling Sophie. What did you think about the advice that she was giving Susie? Potentially risky at the beginning, but if Susie is ever going to find um, a way to deal with this person where she's going to have to tell her no at some point, how you pointed out, was it in a private discussion or the podcast the other day when we were trying to decide what it was a manager does? Oh, it was on the podcast. And given that kind of role, the manager can't just strictly be a yes person because they have to inject their guidance into where they're going. And sometimes those ideas are going to be bad when they come from the talent. If you're trying to keep them on this path toward what you've agreed on is what success looks like. Sometimes the answer is no. Yeah. Well, even in that moment when, you know, uh, Sophie's acting so flustered about the door, I was even surprised at Susie being able to say, may I suggest you go practice on the door? Even that, because of their dynamics, seems so forward and so bold as to make a suggestion to Sophie on how to fix something. Like, I didn't really know if she was going to be like, walk right out the door and not come back in, you know, because she's, they have such a power imbalance. I thought, how is she possibly going to take a suggestion from Susie on how to do this? But the fact that she did... I thought, okay, maybe this is like the most minuscule little inroad that Susie has made with her where she can see she can give suggestions, she can correct her, you know, and and get her back on track, pull her back in. It, it was a tiny moment, but I swear to God, it was like one of the very first moments where she, you know, kind of contradicted what she said and said like, no, let's do it a different way and you can do it. And The Door is another example of this episode with kind of just big physical gags that they let run. Yes. 
Like she didn't just open and do- open the door like once. She practiced a couple of times before they cut to another scene. You know, it's like the swimming thing. The swimming thing went on for a really long yes. time. Let's move on over to there because I think that we're pretty sure that we understand that Sophie and Susie have to change their dynamic and that Susie is starting to make tiny steps towards some movement. I'm going to say just some movement towards becoming more of her manager and less of just her yes man. So yeah, let's move over to Midge and Susie in the pool. Holy smokes. That was wild. What did you think about the fact that Susie couldn't swim given that she grew up on a dock? I mean, that seems like a basic safety thing, uh, but you know, they weren't safe back in the day. (laughs) Not only that, but if you remember, her mom was an alcoholic and was not nice to Susie. So Mm. there wasn't any real like adult supervision slash like anyone, you know, looking out for her or trying Mm -hmm. to teach her things. Yeah. It was a survival kind of situation. I kind of thought her and her sister, though, might have somehow learned. Because if you remember, they they were kind of more, had each other's backs a little bit more. I don't know. Not a great. It was a dock, but was it a beach? I mean, no, I don't remember seeing a beach. It was definitely like a dock. But if your home is on a dock, I mean... I don't know. I, I You're right. Like those are not the types of places like a harbor type little situation <laughs> where boats come in. That's not a good place to swim. So you're right. It's just a weird feeling of like you're literally surrounded by water and you don't know how to swim. But, you know, again, we know that she grew up in, in a lower class than, than Midge for sure. And that she, you know, we all know that having recreation and having, you know, that kind of extra lessons and stuff, that's all supreme luxury well, to an extent swimming is a luxury oh for sure just because the space around your home happens <laughs> to be where p- other people might swim that's like you said that might have been not might not have been safe waters to learn I do not so. Think so no <laughs> yeah it makes some sense but the safety aspect these days would be like what how could you live on the water and not know how to swim what did you think about midge teaching her it was cute and funny and it was a very you know, Amy kind of gag for it to run like that. And <laughs> Alex Borstein really did her best, but like the swearing in the pool in front of the families and very funny stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Cringy there, a little. Oh, yes. Cringy a little because they were f bombing all over the place. There was a lot of little moments in this that reminded me of Gilmore Girls. The tipping at the beginning, you know, when she's going around tipping everybody, that Big is tipping. a- that is a whole thing that Paris does when they are going um, on vacation down to Florida. She tips everybody. She tells Roy, you need to tip in advance. And that way they know who the big spenders are. And then she ends up tipping a guy and Roy says, I don't think he works here. And she goes, he will someday. And, and like that kind of stuff, that was a hundred percent like the same gag being played out. Same within the pool. You're in the life. They have an entire conversation about how kids pee in the pool all the time and why, you know, the pool is just like a toilet, essentially. And they're even gagging when kids come out to use the water fountain because they're like, oh, no, they're just refilling to go pee back in the pool. Um, So when she asks the kids, like, who's been peeing in the pool and they say, oh, you know, all of them raise their hand. It's like, yeah, this is (laughs) this is clearly some deep seated Paladino concerns (laughs) that that have been like playing out a bunch of times. Did you catch the moment when Susie said she might get around to using that law degree? Yeah, that was so weird. I don't know what to think of it because then Midge is like, wait, what did you say? And it's not clear whether that was a thousand percent a joke. I have no idea. I have no idea either. I mean, I have to think there's no way. Right. But also, like other people might be listening to us and being like, you guys are idiots. But I, there was just enough pause that I was like, what? Well, she was naive about the idea of 
Sophie having the contract and so restrictive and not asking about it. But then when it came time to read the contract, she was able to read the language. And she was able to find the little caveat in it. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's crazy and silly. And like, again, we're probably, I mean, 99.9%, no way. But oh, I'll leave the door open for you because that was such a weird bit of banter that I don't know, perhaps. Can I tell you something else that was like a gigantor surprise about this episode? I'm all ears. Lenny Bruce coming back. I'm always happy to see Lenny. He's so charismatic and cool. He's everything I'd want to be if I still had that much hair. Oh my God. He is so suave. He's what the ladies call a panty dropper, Paul. Okay. It's fantastical. I love him. I the ladies do say that. Yeah. I'll pretend like they do. I, I think that, you know what? He's sexy, but he's funny and he's cool. And the way that they could just like go back and forth with each other and tease. Oh my God. I freaking loved it. And, and the fact that he's there for this work thing, you know, what did you think of this Miami after dark business that he was doing? Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you read up on what they were mimicking there. Cause I, it really seemed familiar what we were seeing. Mm -hmm. If you go to YouTube and look up Lenny Bruce, you'll find like Steve Allen show clips and stuff like that. And you'll see that TV really did look like this back then in terms of like the host, just sort of wandering around the set and it's like talking on a party. Yeah. Right. And talking to the piano player <laughs> and, and all that shit. That's what it looked like. That's what they thought good TV looked like. Well, so it was supposed to be this homage to Hugh Hefner's Playboy's Penthouse, which like Lenny Bruce actually appeared on in 1959. Um, and so, you know, it was supposed to look like one of his apartments. Like you had just come in on this Playboy party and we were just going to sit down and have this little conversation with somebody at home. Now, Certainly they've done this on like MTV and plenty of other places. You know, what's that one? It's like something like 50 questions or something like that where they go into someone's house yeah. and they walk around their house. Like this is a whole vibe that I think is a popular genre where you want to kind of see people, even if it's a fake party, some of those things like, you know, all the, all the dance party, you know, type shows where it's like, oh, we've just joined a dance party, just an impromptu right, dance party right. going Cribs. on. <laughs> well, Cribs is different, but sure. Like all of those things. I think completely work, but Lenny, Bruce, and Midge, oh my God, when they are just like bantering back and forth with the donuts, that alone, when he was like, yo, ruin your dinner, I was like <laughs> melting. I was melting. Like their rapport is so fantastic. It kills me because it feels like one of those things that's so wonderful. It's like, it's like that, that part where, uh, on, and Willy Wonka, where he goes like the suspense is, is so, you know, it's like so thrilling. Like, I hope it'll last. Like you don't want it to, to end, you know, you just want them to stay in this tension of will they, won't they, oh, yeah. I just love it. So were you disappointed that they didn't? I won't say that. I, I actually loved the way that they constructed that scene. I'm sh to an extent, I was a little disappointed that they didn't <laughs> make a little magic that happened that night, but the way they went about the magic finding another time, mm -hmm. both of them could come out of it unashamed and unembarrassed. It was a literal open door. It, no pressure either way. It's there if you want to go in. And when she, when she opted not to, it, you know, he didn't do anything to physically or emotionally <laughs> restrain her. And she didn't say anything to him to make him feel like, well, that was the wrong move, mister. You know, it was, 
I I really liked seeing that scene play out the way that it did for those reasons. What, what about you? I think you're dead on it. I think the thing that you said to me when we were watching, you looked over and you're like, I really like how she walked away in a way that didn't embarrass him. It didn't, no one was feeling disrespected. No one was feeling like we've messed up our friendship or we've done anything wrong here. It was an offer. Like, do you want to drink? No. Okay. No problem. And you just like moved on. It wasn't anything. No one's feelings were hurt. And that's very rarely modeled on TV. Like what that looks like, you know, Mm -hmm. I think if you asked anyone, can you just like write down a scene or tell me a scenario where two people have dialogue and the person you know, doesn't feel embarrassed to walk away from this situation or doesn't feel like, you know, the the entire dance of consent can't happen in a way that's kind of smooth and relaxed and casual. You can also say no. And it also not be like this big dramatic moment where everyone's upset with one another. Like you can ask and answer and everybody can still walk away intact. And like, I think that You're that's right. something that very rarely happens. Yeah, the the denial is usually followed up with, uh, well, you're a bitch anyway kind Rejection, of thing. right? And, yeah. yeah, like where there's got to be this big emotive feeling. You're right. And instead he accepted her fully and she could also talk to him like via body language and everything else too, where it was like, I, this isn't the right thing for us right now. And everybody could be completely cool and walk away. Really good. I'm so curious about the information that we were given, the the rules of what night stands we were given by Carol. One of the rules that she gives, you know, first of all, is have a weapon, which was like, yeah, girl. Do you have a gun? You want a gun. You should get a gun. (laughs) That whole thing. But then also the, the look into the room. And if the room is messy, then just imagine what basically he's like, his body is like, right? Well, the reason why I'm bringing that particular rule up is because the door is open. She does kind of glance in and then opts not to go in. And I'm kind of curious if Lenny Bruce is a messy guy, kind of, you know, or things looked dirty and out of place. And she like had that like, hold up, wait a minute. (laughs) Things might be messy or out of place other places. And I don't want to deal with that. Hmm. Well, he, but he lives in a hotel and so he gets service every day, right? Very true. But things like, I don't know, pizza boxes or I, I have no idea because maybe that's not it at all. And maybe it was a true, just like protection of their friendship. And it's so great to reconnect, you know, again, like let's, let's like continue to stretch out this because in this episode, that whole portion where they're in the Cuban club. Yeah. It is sultry. It is sexy. It is intimate. It is so, again, reminiscent of a year in the life where we have the club, the tango club that they go to and Logan and Rory are sitting there and it is very similar. They're doing a lot of staring at each other. It's the same kind of thing, though. It's all very sexy dancing and very like um, Rosemary Clooney is brought up in that one, which Rosemary Clooney was brought up in a previous episode. Um, There's just a lot of similarities there that I think for whatever reason, that's what the Paladinos put in this um, box of like romantic, sexy, perfect night for a couple, because it was basically supposed to be like the last night that Logan and Roy were going to spend together. And so in a lot of ways, I worry since I know that that's how they paint a last night. I Mm. worry if that means that Lenny and Midge, while he says we're going to do this before I die, we know that Lenny Bruce dies not too much longer from where we are. We know he dies mid sixties. I don't, this might be like a road not taken in the end. I sure hope we see him at least one more time before the end of the season though. He's 
He's so dynamic. Such a strong presence on on screen and their their playfulness on the TV. That was also one thing about if you watch his clips where he did push what would have been the standards of decency on TV um, with his humor when he was on that, just in the bit with um, Midge and they're joking about sister or, or wife and all that kind of stuff. All of those jokes were right up against the barrier there. The host, I forget the name of the host. It's unimportant. But he even kind of, what does he say? Say something like, we're live now or, or something to, to kind of uh, back <laughs> to him To be off. like, please. Right. <laughs> I think it was like a pleading, like, please, please, please don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. But still, they're, I mean, they're smiling and and they're, and uh, and it's cute banter. and and But the club, the club really with the uh, smoke. They're both smoking, right? Yeah. Yeah. And sharing yeah. a cigarette and stuff like that. Like very it's stylized. All, it's just very, and very familiar, very intimate, very like, this is going somewhere. And, you know, the last song that they play for them when Midge is like walking away is um, Mama's and the Papa's cover of Dedicated to the One I Love. There was something about that that has this like wistful, I don't know, it's almost like a letter you're writing or something to something that, that you don't actually have. It's not, it's not, a, it's not something that has ever like consummated for lack of a better word. Right. Okay. It's just like this kind of feeling of like a far away love, you know, like we, we, I wish we could have it. We can't have it. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly explaining it. Right. But there's something about that song. I love mamas and the papas that just feel like, like my heart is with you, but also like they both have their, their careers. I would really like to see Midge's career not be derailed. By love, you know, we had that potential there with with uh, Zachary Levi coming on the scene and that could have absolutely gone that way. And she made a decisive choice to choose her career over love. So I sure would hate to have another love interest come in and somehow mess that up. You know, like she doesn't deserve that as a character. I don't want them to write her like that. Lenny would be a more um, uh, compelling thing to choose between, right? Because well, they could was, go on the road together. He was, he was there at the beginning of the comedy and he, he is already famous in that business. And and he supports and encourages her that she is funny and she can do this. Like he's not going to be someone who's going to be like, stay at home, you know? So there's like potential there. Yeah. Yeah. And now we know like he's getting divorced. He's got to deal with his alimony. and stuff. There's some real stuff there that like, he's available. (laughs) I just don't know if I want it to go there. You know, I'm just not so sure. Well, he's a lovable guy. That's the trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very true. Moving forward, it looks like we've still got to spend some time in Miami. Whether or not we still run into Lenny Bruce or not, I'm not so sure. But some sort of hijinks have to occur with the Wisemans, right? I I think definitely. I mean, having them come and watch her act... Yeah, I think something crazy is going to have to happen, don't you? Because she had to, she had to have that whole act dedicated to to getting her parents <laughs> off her mind, <laughs> right? Exactly, right, so that she could deliver her normal act and not mention her parents and embarrass them. Yeah, and get herself in trouble in in the show that they watch. I was actually a little worried in that scene that her parents would have uh, dusted themselves off and gotten to the show that night and then seen the show where she did she only talked about her parents. Well, I worried about that, but you know what? They were so exhausted. They definitely seem like they needed a, like a night just to go right to bed. Like they needed to take showers. Again, that convoluted route that they got there, you know, taking so many different trains and everything. It was also wild and woolly. 
I, I'm very confused about the amount of money they have and can just like spend all over the place. I don't know. It all sounded crazy, but when they were in the lobby, it looked like a, an acting exercise, you know, cause they were just sitting there like statues flopped over. <laughs> right. And then yeah. the way that they shifted into, Oh, Midge recognized us. It seemed, you know how, like, um, you've, you know, we've never taken acting exercises, but we've seen them on TV and that's what it kind of looks like. Now be a broom. Now be a refrigerator. Now yeah. be a clown. Be like a and, floppy doll. Okay. Right. Now be a parent. <laughs> right. right. No, I, I agree with you. I could see that. All right. So still in Miami, Susie, does she continue to assert herself with Sophie and does that work? I think she has to in some way because I, I God, I don't want to be taking steps backwards with that. I, I mean, I feel like this play is going to be a flop, but, you know, I don't know how much detail they're going to show us about that. I'm not really sure. I did want to make sure that I mentioned that it was super funny to me that Sophie like makes this little like comment that um, that Gavin Hawk, who remembers Carrie always is going to go do like a, a like a pirate movie after this. Mm. And a lot of viewers were saying, like, is that like the Princess Bride like nod to that? Like, how funny is that? I if it was so. how funny I like when they throw in little things like that. But Sophie, I mean, I got to think this is going to go really, really badly. And I, how is she not going to blame Susie? So is, will this be the end of the Sophie and Susie relationship? Will she bail on her? I don't know. Good question. Just like having uh, Luke Kirby in there as uh, Lenny Bruce and bringing so much charisma on screen, Jane Lynch, whenever she's in a scene, it doesn't matter who she's with. She's the center of, of attention. So dismissing that character, even, even though she's in there for maybe half of the episodes instead of all the episodes, I don't know that they would do that just so quickly. Well, and obviously she provides like a huge amount of like push and pull for Susie. I mean, she's having to run back and forth. If she was able to dedicate all her time to Midge, then this would look very different. But her having to run back and forth every time that that Susie's not there, that's when we get the injection of, say, Lenny Bruce or Abe and, and Rose or Joel. You know, it's like Susie's got to create a vacuum situation by leaving that then someone else comes and fills the void, you know? Good observation, yeah. So then in that case, maybe they have to have her keep going back or are we already out of people? If she's now has her parents here and now she's seen Lenny and she's already had Joel come out, okay, now Susie can just stay because we don't have anyone else that needs to come see her? Or is, or is there hijinks with the band? Or, or do we need like Emma Jean to come out or do we right. need other people? <laughs> like, I'm not sure yet, but there's Dropping definitely a pattern. <laughs> right. Uh, Something else is going to happen. And then finally, Joel. I personally think May is going to hold up the liquor license. That's what I think. Okay. That's what I think. I'm 100% fine with that because honestly, I I don't know that that Joel needs to have more like obstacles, right? Like May was making this real easy. And I like that she could flex in the opposite direction to show like, oh, I got ways to do other things too. That seems like fun, like a fun, more of a cat and mouse than what we've been having with them. This is Caroline. This is Paul. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you listen to potty podcasts <laughs> please give us five stars or whatever the highest rating is and let people know that you like to listen to pod clubhouse thanks a lot thanks for listening thank you for listening this has been an original pod clubhouse production pod clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. 
Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Odd Clubhouse.